Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben. Uh, today, we're chatting across the pond with uh, Dr. Uh, Darren Bowring. I discovered Darren's work uh, a few years back uh, as I was, uh, I, I've had a lot of interest over the years in uh, kind of what the UK and, and uh, you know, other countries kind of across the sea have been doing in terms of PBS. I, I'm, uh, as folks, a lot of folks know, I'm kind of in the, the PBS realm. And uh, I've always been interested in kind of what the UK has been doing uh, ever since I sort of discovered some of uh, kind of the early work of uh, like Manzel and, and Hastings and, and some of those folks. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really seen, you know, uh, research in this area that was sort of outside of kind of the Oregon core of, you know, Horner and those folks, and of course, Lavinia and Willis in California, and to sort of start to see that, you know, some folks are doing some really good work in other parts of the world in PBS, and most notably, I think, uh, you know, the UK and and, uh, and Australia, um, I, I really got interested in uh, kind of following the work. And so Darren's work really kind of struck me uh, because he's just doing some really neat things around, uh, you know, designing PBS teams, and, uh, you know, he's got a I really like sort of his thoughts around quality of life and some of the kind of neat things he's doing in terms of, um, you know, uh, medication and kind of over over prescribing medication to the, the folks we serve. So uh, really excited to kind of chat about a topic that I'm passionate about. Normally, I talk to people about topics that I, I, I know nothing about and it's just a, a learning experience. And so I'm looking forward to kind of diving into to something that uh, I've spent a lot of time in. So, Darren, thanks a lot for being on the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Ben. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So, Darren, maybe we might just get started and and uh, kind of with a bit of an origin story, and, and maybe you can sort of tell the folks kind of kind of how you got into the field and and how you came to sort of uh, the realm of PBS, and then and then eventually to kind of the work you're doing now. Yeah, well, I guess I I guess my story started over a bit more near yourselves, over your side of the pond, when um, I finished university as a graduate and was um, considering what to do next, and uh, ended up getting a summer placement um, uh, at a summer camp in uh, in Wisconsin in the USA, working with children that had some challenging behaviour at, at the time, and that led to a, a role in a school back in the UK following that summer placement, which was a school for children that had been excluded. Um, from a number of schools in in London, what was called a school for children with emotional and behavioural difficulties at the time. Um, and although we didn't know it in the early 90s, I guess we were working to a to a very much a PBS model in terms of our uh, our, our approach, in terms of shying away from uh, some of the uh, punishment and restrictive type models that have been used on these children very unsuccessfully in the past. And working to try to understand why they were behaving in the way that they were and and working to actually try to meet their needs and 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 work a bit more therapeutically in terms of understanding that a lot of their behavior was based on distress and you know the deficient environments had access so uh, so I guess I fell into it and then I started um you, you know with some of my um academic roots doing master's degrees in emotional and behavioral um, issues and then very eventually doing a master's degree in ABA at Bangor you know under a, under you talk of uh, you know founders of PBS uh, the, the Bangor cohort was very much the people who were behind PBS in the UK in terms of Sandy Tugard and and Carl Hughes and Richard Hastings and uh, and others at the, uh, at the time so um 
by going down that route, um, I eventually moved to Jersey, set up a PBS team, a community-based PBS team in Jersey, which is a, a small island, a, a British Crown dependency off the coast of the UK. And for the last 15 years, I guess, I've developed the PBS service over here. I completed a PhD, which was very much based on PBS. I've continued to do some research since in PBS with an honorary research position at the University of Warwick. And I've also been involved with um, the British Institute of Learning Disabilities as well in terms of being a PBS consultant um, and build have pretty much taken a lead with PBS training and PBS conferences and education in the UK. So I've had a I've had a role there in terms of um, contributing to that training and speaking at conferences and uh, and other events um, that they've had. So it's been an exciting time, I would say, over the last ten years for PBS. We've seen quite a growth in the UK. Starting, I, I guess, the community model was really um, really exploded back in 2015 with um, some of the um, nice guidance that was happening at the time and um, some of the uh, papers such as uh, the National Plan Building Up the Right Support, which was published by NHS England, which really recommended this idea of having specialist community-based behavioral services that could work with other practitioners and, and you know, move away from this model where historically people with learning disabilities would be you know, placed in inpatient type settings, restrictive type um, group homes or, or hospital type settings where medication was prevalent, restrictive practices were prevalent. So, mm. you know, I guess the push in England was to very much move away for, for this community based model and think about how we can sustain people in their in their environment. So, you know, I think the way I've I've benefited from some of this, I've I like to think that I've had a, an academic focus through this, but tried to keep my academic work based on very practical based contributions in terms of what's happening in the real world and keep some of the research based on real world experiences and practice. And, and I guess that's what PBS is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what exactly as far as makes sort of a, a specialist community-based PBS service sort of differ from other kind of practices? Well, I guess, particularly in Jersey, um, the positive behavior support um, service over here sits, as many of us do in the UK, as part of a much wider multidisciplinary um, learning disability service. And I think that's important. And I think it's important because we know that the PBS model has been described by others. I think it, Smith described it as a package. Some other academics and practitioners have described it as a framework. So so I, I see PBS is bigger than um, simply the science of behavior, although that's fundamental to the work that, that we do. Mm-hmm. But it's bigger. And I think some of the adults that we work with, their lives and consequently some of the, the behavior that, that, that we experience is shaped much more than mere um, environmental and functional type moments in, in their lives. So a lot of the early research that we did was based on trying to understand, for example, what some of the vulnerability factors were towards the presentation of challenging behavior. Mm. And I use that term carefully. And I use that term because, A, it's, it's, it's widely used in academia. But I also used it to place the onus um, within the environment and within deficient environments as opposed to a label for, for people. But I guess if you look at any of the research that's been done previously on vulnerability factors to behavior or some of the work that we did in in Jersey to that, it's quite clear that we see much higher levels of challenging behavior 
where there are certain factors at play for people with learning disabilities. So, for example, the work I did and the work others have done, there's much higher propensity of challenging behaviour in people that have communication impairments or more severe intellectual disabilities. So that instantly gives us the idea that, that if we get communication right, that right early, then surely that's a protective factor going forward in terms of the future occurrence of, of challenging behaviour. And I guess that's why, to me, this idea of having an MDT looking at uh, at behaviour is important, because we know that other vulnerability factors outside of communication are things like impaired health. And we know that people with learning disabilities tend to have poorer health outcomes than others. And we know that poorer health is also a vulnerability factor for challenging behaviour. We also know, for uh, example, that lack of engagement has been deemed um, an issue in the past. Mm -hmm. When I did a piece of research in 2017 on that, over 200 adults with learning disabilities on Jersey, we found 40% had no daytime engagement whatsoever. And of that cohort, wow. a lot entity of, that, uh, of those were in that list we would describe as, as challenging. So we, we need to be working on, on that. We need to be understanding people's sensory issues and, and that. So here in Jersey, we have, within our team, we have community nurses working on health promotion, um, working with the hospitals so people can access services. We have occupational therapists working on engagement levels, skill teaching, enabling people to be able to get their own needs met in terms of personal care. We know that group homes and residential housing has been linked to um, high levels of behavioural challenge in the past. We've got social workers working with people, making sure that their rights are met, making sure that they get choice of where they live, who they live with, who supports them. So I see this concept of challenging behaviour as bigger than, than me going in doing a functional assessment. There's lots of other layers within this that requires other practitioners you know, psychologists are important in terms of some of the therapeutic aspects and talking therapies uh, and contributions in terms of formulation they can bring. Psychiatry is important as well, particularly in understanding where there's associated mental health comorbidities. So we need bigger teams uh, around people. And I think that's what PBS is about. It's not just about me as a, as a, a behavioral practitioner. It's about right. having this group of staff, this group of people that helps. And, you know, I've seen people, people's behavior transform by moving house or transform by being given some mobility support mm -hmm. or improved because we've got their epilepsy under control or improved because an OT's done a sensory profile assessment and we've understood some of the um, sensory issues they find aversive and made and made adaptions to their environments or or, or, or support around that. So it's a bigger thing. And I think that's what PBS is. And that's what that's where the community teams come into it in the UK, being part of this wider network of practitioners to work holistically around people. Awesome. So these are like sort of some of the terms I think over here we've used are like wraparound or or uh, or transdisciplinary kind of teams. And so all these folks are 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 I guess these are sort of relationships and partnerships you've sort of built over the last sort of 15 years. And, and so all these folks are, you know, are pretty collaborative. I think this is sometimes an area where over here we kind of struggle where uh, I think there's some the phrase play nicely in the sandbox, as it were, um, yeah. you know, with sort of these other professionals. And so do you find that the, the relationships are pretty good and, and that um, some of these other professionals are, are supportive of kind of the PBS approach? 
Absolutely. I think the ethos of PBS runs absolutely through our through our whole um, services over here, right down to the support on the ground and in terms of what we uh, deliver through some charitable providers and, and through our families. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that comes down because we've had some very key individuals such as myself and others who have acted as, as really good practice leaders for the PBS approach. And I guess it's easier in Jersey. If we think Jersey's a very small island, eight by five, 100,000 people, this, the MDT Learning Disability Service is in one building on one floor where everybody works together um, mm. um, and they work together day in, day in, day out. So if anywhere should get it right, it's in an environment such as this, where we mm-hmm. are very close and when we can all collectively visit people every day because we're in such a small, uh, small island. So I think it works because we're all together collectively as one team. The environments where I see it doesn't work is where you have distinct services that people are trying to refer to each other and services are very busy as well. And we know that. We know PBS services in the UK are hugely in demand. Mm. Um, There's a shortage of behavior analysts and and, and shortage of psychologists at, at, at the moment. Uh, as well. So I know it's difficult gaining access sometimes to to, to practitioners and, and, and services. That's why I think it's important, you know, to think of, of when we design these services, to think in mind of, with, with a behavioral model, what works? Well, good relationships work. That's what works with good PBS. And that, mm-hmm. that also applies in our organizational behavior management, I guess, in terms of how do we create teams. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really important point, the idea that it's not just about finding the function and uh, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, manipulating, you know, SDs and MOs and those sorts of things. The simple fact of, uh, uh, I love, I love the, your point of just moving some, moving someone from, uh, you know, a different residence can, can make all the difference because often, I think a lot of the problems we see over here, particularly in these group home settings are individuals that had no choice in living with each other. Yeah. And, you know, it's really just, you know, and, and if, if you go back to your college days, it's just really, you know, uh, living with a really bad roommate, you know, and and all all, all of the sorts of uh, feelings and annoyances and you know stress that one goes through by living with someone that they're not getting along with, um, add a lack of communication skills and uh, potentially a staff team that's you know maybe more focused on the other guy uh, because of you know other other needs or whatnot, and and suddenly you've got a, a whole lot of different problems, and so simply just moving someone from one place to another is 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 often you know uh all you need yeah 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 i I, and i don't for one minute believe we've got it totally right over here uh, as well if i think back 15 years ago um a lot of people i work with would be in you know we moved from the hospital type institutional setting to a group home um um, setting and we've moved now where we have a we, we have many more people who have their own homes um, with our own tenancies um, that are bespoke designed with our own staff team around them. So we've made really good progress. And I see dramatic reductions in in levels of challenges once people have their own homes that, mm-hmm. that they have that are designed to meet their needs and they can choose choose everything in them, but choose what they do, choose who s- supports them. But the flip side of that is that, you know, I worry sometimes as well that people then become isolated. We don't have the same scrutiny over staff as well. We have staff working maybe on a one-to-one or two-to-one 
and you know the wards wards weren't appropriate but on the wards we had nurses we had staff keeping an eye on other staff we had much more social aspects of different people around mm. so i um, so i think we have to be careful that we do this in a way where the person and their family lead this at the heart and and they make the decisions about where they live who they live with who supports them the type of property that they live in and if it's not right once they've experienced we change and we move again and we give them lots of experiences like we all do in our lives. None of us tend to stay in the same place. We, we mm-hmm. move and we live with different people and we have different relationships and we move for work. And, 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 and I think life's been very different for people with learning disabilities. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, some of the learning is it needs to be, you know, that, that the whole model requires some sort of, uh, of review. So, so we are getting it better and we understand some of the deficiencies in the current models. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I heard you right, I think you made you made a really a really interesting point about um, um, and and a somewhat you know ironic too, I guess is is the idea that folks kind of move from a you know a congregate care kind of setting into community, you know, because you know we want to deinstitutionalize and sort of all, all those pieces that are related there, but we don't think about the actual socializing that was happening in those institutions and not not to say that those were you know great places and and that we should reopen them and bring back you know institutionalization that's yeah, certainly not yeah. my point at all but the fact is there is a lot more when you have you know sort of 800 people living on, on on a floor or whatnot there is inherently a lot more opportunities for some kind of socialization versus moving into a group home alone with one roommate who you, you may or may not get along with and then we don't think about sort of, you know, we've got to now rebuild these social networks. I kind of think about um, when I was consulting in, uh, in, uh, uh, for an agency, and it was one of the early agencies in British Columbia, so it took a lot of the folks from institution. And, and I discovered that um, you know, a lot of the folks that were living in sort of the different group homes, not living together, were actually all from the same floor of the institution that they lived in sort of 20 years ago. In essence, um, they were kind of ripped away from all their friends uh, and and moved into these sort of group home settings. And so, you know, uh, one one of the things I kind of kind of one regret because I had to sort of leave and and, and leave town. But one thing I really kind of wanted to work on was, you know, how can we sort of, you know, in a thoughtful sort of way reunite the folks living in institutions that were you know together from yeah. childhood often. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think to me, sometimes we have to be, we have to continually remind ourselves not to try and impose our own values and ideas on other people. And, you know, we, we, I've been reflecting over the last 18 months, particularly with the COVID pandemic and uh, issues with with lockdown. And um, I've been to a couple of virtual conferences and, and workshops since. And what has interested me is anecdotal reports that providers have said that during a lockdown period, they reported much fewer challenges. Mm-hmm. And that's that conversation's happened time and time again. And that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we, we encourage our staff to go into work and keep people busy and, and promote community access and make sure people are having social opportunities and they're getting vocational opportunities and... Yeah, during lockdown, when that wasn't available, we see lower levels of challenges, and I, yep. and, I and I and I reflect back and think, why is that? Is is that because our idea of what is good quality of life for some people isn't actually what they want, 
and we are causing people more distress by implementing our view of what we think an ideal day and world. And we're pushing staff to do what they, we think is their ideal day and world on other people's um, um, lives. So again, it comes back to this heart of this thing with PBS in terms of where people live or what they do is how do we make sure people have good self-determination and they can influence their own lives? And I'm convinced that we would see much lower levels of issues if we got better at that. If you'd like to collect continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is quality. When we had kind of our pre-chat, we started kind of talking about quality of life, and I, and I really, yeah. I really kind of liked your thinking in this area. Um, just sort of, and maybe we can reflect on this and reflect a bit on your uh, outcome study on, on yeah. community-based PBS. Just kind of looking at kind of you know. Kind of how do, how do we define success in PBS? Is it just a matter of you know no challenging behavior? Is it the sort of quality of life idea? You know you know sort of what what determines that success? Because I think you know you, you touched on a really good point. We've spent a lot of time doing some research around you know in terms of quality of life. You know Dr. Shalock is is you know probably one of the the the, the most widely known sort of researcher in that area and he's come up with some really interesting tools and had them validated and whatnot. And there's been some other ones since then um that have been into place. But and and, and sometimes you look at sort of the uh you know and, and it really made me think sometimes you look at sort of the scoring on these sheets and I remember I, I did a, a, a Shalock quality of life survey years ago with a group home that I was managing but before I became a behavior analyst and and all the residents kind of uh, came up really low in terms of quality of life but you know anecdotally visually they all seemed quite happy um yeah. uh, you know uh, uh, for for whatever reason um uh, being in the state they were and it just made me wonder are our quality of life measures are, are they biased are they too old I, I'm, I'm sort of I, I really know the question here. I guess the question is, 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 is what are successful PBS outcomes and, and, yeah. how do we, and how do we kind of assess that? Yeah. You know, most individuals get referred to PBS teams because of concerns around challenging behavior. And that's probably mm-hmm. the first part. So there's, a, there's obviously a goal and target into to reduce that. And if we see the behavioral challenges as, as distress and reactions to deficient environments and supports, then there's obviously a need for us to, to tackle that issue. The prime aim of PBS has always been the promotion of quality of life. And not only is it an outcome that we hope to achieve for people, it's also an intervention. So we know that if we improve people's quality of life, we will see natural and secondary reductions in levels of challenging behavior. Before we get into the the more behavior analytic type approaches that we need to look at. Mm. So I think that's really important. And in the study that that we did in Jersey on 85 people referred to to the PBS service um, Mm -hmm. there, we saw a direct correlation between improvements in their quality of life and reductions in levels of challenging behavior. Mm. So there's certainly evidence that if you improve people's quality of life, you see a reduction in, in challenging behavior. So that's one thing. So I think I, I think it is an important area that we need to focus on. I think if you look at the, um, the domains, um, the existing domains, 
the Sherlock domains, for example, Sherlock comes up with eight domains. I think if you go through them, invariably you will you will go through them all and say, yeah, people with learning disabilities have been done a bad deal with some of these. So, you know, you go through physical well-being. We know people have poorer health outcomes. Material well-being. We know that very few people with learning disabilities have jobs. Most in Jersey receive benefits and live in some sort of uh, of supported uh, accommodation. Social inclusion is another domain. I've already said that 40% of adults over here have no daytime engagement. Mm-hmm. We know that that's not good. We know they have they have poor rights. That's why we have charities trying to campaign about people with learning disabilities, these rights. And you, so you go through the list of domains of quality of life and you know that we haven't got it right. And, and there's a way to go um, in terms of improving some of this. My thoughts on this are, though, in terms of that, you know, PBS is a science. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a database science, as is ABA. And yet we struggled with finding how we assess and measure quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can't assess and measure it, how can we demonstrate that we're improving it and we're doing better? So there are a number of measures. A lot of us have scrambled around <laughs> for different um, different measures. Yeah. There was a systematic review about six years ago by Townsend White and colleagues that looked for quality of, of life measures for services involved with challenging behavior and found none were ideal. Mm. So we know that that's a starting place that we come from, but we don't have ideal measures which makes it difficult. So there's some work to do there. There's some work by our academic colleagues and others to try to develop some better tools um, that, that, that we can use. And I guess my view on some of this as well is that the, the domains that we have in existence, although relevant, I still believe that looking at them, I think some of them are a little bit old-fashioned, mm. a bit historic, certainly westernized in, yes. terms, of, in terms of some of them. Um, and whether they would re- reflect the quality of life targets of the neurodiverse community um, mm-hmm. that we support and adults with learning disabilities, I don't think so. You know, we have on there, you know, the second one on a Sherlock domain is material well-being. And, and, and again, you, you, you know, would that come up as most of us in terms of our, our, our main quality of life goal? It might do um, for some. For a mm-hmm. lot of others, it wouldn't. You know, the vocational bit, I've got a an adult that I've supported for a number of years, an autistic adult that has fascinating conversations with me that says, why do people go to work? He just simply, he simply can't understand it. Why would you want to get up in a prescriptive way every day and go to jobs where people complain about um, and, and, and invariably do something you don't really enjoy when you mm-hmm. can do other things, which is a wonderful way of viewing life and, and the world. With him, we're still trying to work whether he can do some self-employed bits around some of his wonderful skills he has as well mm-hmm. to offer back. But there's an element when I look at somebody's quality of life domains and everything, I think, are they really relevant to the people that we we, we, right. we or, and can we use them as a baseline and as a target? And I'm not sure we get we get it quite right. I am encouraged by there's um, a charity in the UK called Stay Up Late. Mm. Um, uh, I really like um, and Stay Up Late. Stay Up Late are quite rock and roll. Um, um, charity. So this is a bit of a shameless plug um, for them. Yes, please. And they started up with a very good strap line for people learning disabilities, the campaign to let people stay up late. Mm. And this comes back from those institutional days where there was eight or nine, 9 p.m. handovers of staff and people would have to be in their pajamas and getting ready to bed yep. because of a staff handover and, and you go to the night staff and there's not enough people to take you out. So 
you don't see people with learning disabilities in pubs and clubs and concerts and gigs and, and issues like that. So Stay Up Late started out campaigning for that. And they have a group of gig buddies in the UK and to support people go to gigs. And so I think this is amazing. This is great stuff. So they've come up with um, a manifesto for an ordinary life. These are things that people with learning disabilities have repeatedly told them that they want in their life. Mm. Now, some of these are associated with the original quality of life domain, but some of them are different. So, you know, people are telling them they not only want a sex life, they want sex. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's one of the top top quality of life. They don't yeah. want to be told what time they go to bed. They want to be they want to decide how they spend their time. They want to choose where they live and who they live with, who supports them. They want to choose happy staff who like their job, no matter what their qualifications are. They want to have a proper paid job with a good income. And they want to have um, not to have bad stuff said in the media about them. So mm. these are these are different. These are different goals. And I'd imagine if you if you sat down with other people, with autistic adults and other there might be different goals. And, and, and quality of life is is bespoke. It's particular to me as it mm -hmm. is to you. And what mm -hmm. we each like in our life is different. And also, I think what makes us happy is potentially different to what makes for a good quality of life. So we've got this whole mix of things, but I'm not sure that we have totally straightened out and we don't have totally clear. But what we need to reflect back is to whoever we get referred to us, to our services, the place to start is allow them to influence their life and to, for us to reflect back. How can we work with them to, so they have good self-determination, so they influence the life that they want? And we sit down and we work out not what our values are, not what their family's values or their staff values. What do they want? What makes a good quality of life for them? What makes them happy? And can we work work from that as the academics and everybody around us improve the use of the tools and other bits for, for us to work with? But I think that's important. And I think that's what separates PBS from, from a lot of others. It does have this ethical, clear drive um, um, towards quality of life. And I think certainly when we talked earlier about what PBS teams do, it's not just, you know, PBS teams do functional assessments um, mm -hmm. um, and they're really important. And, and, you know, at the heart, I'm an ABA practitioner as well. And, and that's important. And without that level of skill, I don't think we, we make the differences um, that we could. But PBS practitioners in teams also need to be looking at these quality of life issues and supporting endeavors towards that. So getting involved, I would suggest people need to get involved in you know, vocational promotions in their in their local area. How can we get more people with learning disabilities into work? You know, six percent in the UK. Post COVID, hospitality is in crisis at the moment. Can't get staff. Business is shutting down. Yet we mm. have six percent of people with learning disabilities in employment. You know, absolutely, absolutely wrong. Um, mm -hmm. You know, why can't we do that? So why are you know we're not seeing people learning in, in nightclubs and in pubs? You know, I go around and, and in my training and I get a row of hands up from staff to say, how many of you have tattoos? And we mm. get probably every time I do it, about half the room up. And, yeah. I, and I think back in the UK at the moment, I think it's about 45 percent of adults have tattoos. And then you look, you look at how many adults with learning disabilities have tattoos. Very few. Mm. And I say that not to encourage people to go <laughs> out and, and take people to tattoo shops. But I think it's a reflection that, that we're all able to make decisions that sometimes mm -hmm. other people would look at as reckless and wrong and probably not right. But we're able to make them because we, we, we're not controlled as other people are around us. And, and, and maybe people with learning disabilities do want tattoos. 
but invariably they don't get them because they're not able to make those choices that others might see as bad, never mind the ones that people would see as good. So we have huge amounts to do until people are accepted as ordinary citizens and having this ordinary life uh, that the Stay Up Late campaign is, um, is, is urging. Wow, that's a really that, that sounds just like such an amazing, an amazing uh, uh, group. Everything you're saying it just resonates so much. Again, I, you know, I, I uh, you know the idea of sort of shutting down life at nine o'clock when 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 the evening staff come on, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think we've I've had sort of these rare occasions where you know someone has been able to go to sort of you know one concert a year or something because we'll spend you know three months you know, rejigging the schedule so that, yeah. you know, two two staff will stay a couple hours later one night and we'll pay them triple overtime or something and 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 that'll make it work. And it just and and it always it's always a successful, wonderful thing, but it just happens sort of, you know, once. And so yeah, I think that's brilliant. Uh, a lot of these things you bring up though are often considered kind of really you know, taboo topics in, in kind of adult kind of community living settings to, to talk about, to talk about an adult, an autistic adult with, uh, you know, potentially, a, you know, an intellectual disability or whatnot, um, being permitted to have sex is just something many, many organizations and many leaders would just, you know, you, you just you just don't bring that stuff up. That's just so yeah. too taboo. You're, that's just yeah. not something you're allowed to do. Um, the yeah. idea that, the idea that, you know, the people living in not, not only have sex, but, you know, could possibly be, you know, not heterosexual, you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think there's a real uh, assumption there that, that uh, you know, that, uh, that in fact, they're all asexual in some way, yeah. Uh, yeah. particularly the folks that maybe, you know, don't have, uh, you know, verbal language to kind of communicate. And so, yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, all this stuff. I, I don't see quality of life surveys asking, do they get to have sex? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't see quality of life surveys saying, do they get to drink till they have a high headache and vomit? You know, and then wake up at three in the morning and go for breakfast at a 24 hour diner. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. You know? and get a tattoo on the way home. <laughs> get a tattoo on the way home. And how many folks with a tattoo do you know that are, you know, that, whose lives are automatically ruined because they've gotten this tattoo. And so yeah. I think, I think, you know, PBS is a really individualized practice. We really spend a lot of time, you know, uh, focusing on getting to know the person and getting to know their likes and dislikes and strengths and wants. And, you know, it's a very collaborative process, but then to have it finish off with an outcome that's very, that's not individualized at all. Quality of life is not an individualized measure. It's a very generalized you yeah. know, ass assumption that, you know, in order to have a good life, you need A, B, C, D, and E. Um, but then you talk about, you know, that fella who, who quite, you know, uh, brilliantly articulated, you know, what's the point of a job, you know, especially, especially in a system that, um, you know, provides funding, provides housing for some yeah. of these folks. Yeah. And so yeah. I've already got a home. I've already got food. I've already got, yeah. you know, shelter and, and people to talk to. Why would I want to leave it and go do something I don't like? Yeah. And that's what he says to me. And that's exactly what he says to me. He says, look at the qualifications I got from school. I'd end up stacking shelves in a supermarket. He said, I'd hate it. I'd have to interact with so many people every day that would make me anxious. And I would, it would be awful to, to experience. And I'd end up taking less money than I do from my existing benefits. He said, why would I put myself through any of that? Why do you all put yourself through 
through that. And, you know, there's aspects of that that I admire as well. You know, when we reflect back, why have we all got into these routines? <laughs> I go home learning from the people, uh, for, from me, and I'm thinking, why have we gone into these? You know, why am I getting up each day doing this? And, <laughs> and, and then for this for this couple of weeks of holiday every year where we, where, where, where we live. And, you know, we need to look at that as well. And I think yeah. that's why this PBS model also, I think particularly when I went in terms of my application, it's about staff as well you know, about, about how we apply the same principles to the staff and the people that are working with us and supporting sure. us. How can we apply the same behavioral principles of reinforcement, inf- allowing them to influence their lives, their shifts? You know, we're doing lots of work at the moment about flexi work and people can, you know, don't have to start at prescriptive times. They've got families. How can we work with them when they're supporting individuals? How can they, you know, how can we match people up? If I've got a love of football, how can I match my, me up with an adult with, dis, with a learning disability that loves football? So we both get to do things on our, you know, when we when I come into work and I can support that adult, we can go and watch a football. And so I think that stuff's really important um, uh, as well. So we get we get really good shared meaning and we work with with the people that provide this support, which is so crucial, mm-hmm. not only in terms of training, so they understand the PBS approach and, and that, but we, we we apply it to them and their lives uh, and the way we treat them as well. I'm curious, it's sort of a side thing, I didn't really talk about this, but I'm, I'm curious about sort of how, one of, one of the big barriers, I think, for us, kind of, at least in sort of my neck of the woods, um, to kind of, you know, developing you know, these systems where, you know, folks can, like like you say, like a flexi shift or like matching staff interests and whatnot. I mean, I think those are all really excellent ideas and, and folks have had them before. Probably the big, one of the biggest barriers for us and for, for the settings and kind of these sort of, you know, residential care kind of settings is that all of our staff are unionized. Mm. Are our staff unionized in the, in the UK? Does it work that way in, in sort of, uh, you know, these kind of residential programs and whatnot? You know? Yeah, I, I guess most people would belong um, to a union, um, mm. whether they're as vocal and organized and militant <laughs> as, <laughs> I, I, as potentially historically some unions have been. I, I, I wouldn't say so. Yeah. But certainly when we when, when we talk about changing terms and conditions, it's, it, mm-hmm. it invariably involves union representation as well when, it, when, when it's done collectively as well. So uh, so I guess it, I, I guess it would remain an issue. Yeah, cer- certainly. The, the type of things I'm thinking of, though, in terms of our approach, in terms of practice leadership and good leadership and, and showing mm-hmm. care for our staff. Um, one of my early managers said to me um, when I asked if I could finish early because because my dad wasn't well, said or stuck with my, me my entire career. He said, if you can't look after your own family and show dedication when they need it how can I possibly trust you to look after other people's? Mm. And that's stuck by me. That's stuck by me um, throughout. So, you know, we need to look after our staff. We need to realize they have families and and show some understanding to that and try to make sure that that they're happy, that, that we make their work happy and we reinforce that. We can't always do it with pay. That's one of the other issues. Certainly yeah. It's very low paid work. And I do believe that's an issue. And if I could do something about that, that I would. But if we can't do anything about that, at least we can try to make sure that their working shift is enjoyable, that they get yeah. to do something that they enjoy to be doing. We f- give them feedback, we support them, we develop them with qualifications and experiences and and look at them in terms of their quality of life and happiness as, as well. Because it, it's, you know, we're talking about systems, people systems here, yeah. aren't we? And, you know, and environments, and it all contributes to, to, to this concept of why we either get challenging behavior or we don't. Does this all fall into this realm of kind of practice leadership that you're talking about? I think so. I think practice leadership is absolutely crucial. And I think quite often 
I can tell early de- early on when I go into settings whether we were we, we will be able to make a difference or 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 not. I think it was Rob Horner that says a PBS plan. It's not a plan for an individual. It's a plan about how we get to change staff behavior, mm-hmm. and uh, it's their behavior plan really. And I think how we change the culture sometimes is really difficult in in these settings. How do we get people to work with us in terms of particularly when we're doing functional assessments and we want people to change their responses and change their antecedent approaches, change their reactive approaches uh, as well. I guess we touched on vulnerability factors. We haven't necessarily touched on impact factors and maintaining processes um, too much yet. You know, certainly when we're doing functional assessments and people are involved in the data and that, I think it's re- that's the, the, the crucial bit. And I think it's really helpful that behavior analysts work with people at that point and the data is shaped up together and people get data put in ways they can understand in visual means and from that data, we collaboratively develop behavior support plans as a result. So obviously, the person is at the heart of that, the adult with learning disability or, or the autistic adult is at the heart of that. But we also need to include the people that are going to be, we want to make changes, be that parents, be that teachers, be that residential staff. And I think it's that crucial stage. And it's that stage, if we think about behavior support plans, we know the evidence for the if they've got good contextual fit. So by which point I mean, if people have contributed to them, that they own them, that they can actually deliver the interventions, that they're not these wild pie in the sky um, approaches, they're realistic, they're real world. And if they've contributed to them and they own them, then I certainly think we get people more on board and we get greater fidelity. And then we get fidelity and then we see an improvement. And then we're going in saying, fantastic, you're making such a difference to this person's life. I'm so, so thrilled at the difference you're making. And, and, at the same time, we're, we're using behavior analytic processes with the staff in terms of how we change their behavior. And, and I think that's the way that's the way we, we, we need to be. And I've, I've seen some behavior analysts who come in and produce a report that just gets filed away. I've seen some behavior analysts come into settings and be super skilled analysts and come up with wonderful plans, but have been unable to change the culture. So I always try to find out who the key person there, who is a key person that influences a culture and how do we get them on side? Having them as that practice leader, and it's sometimes not the person you would expect. It's not sometimes a manager. Sometimes it's a really grumpy teacher that controls the staff room. <laughs> or it's the, it's the old school member of staff that's been there 20 years and left the army and believes people need discipline. It's those type of people we need to turn around and get on board yes. and get on top of this work because they have the greatest influence in terms of changing the culture. And once you have them on board and able to engage, that's how you then begin to change the cultures. And we see improvements again um, uh, again for people. It's an application. How do we change? You know, we, we don't want to change that person. We're not fixing that person's behavior. They're behaving in ways because their environment, the support, everything happening around them isn't correct. And we need to get people to change to change that, to make changes for them. So there's lots to do in, in, in that area, I would suggest as well. Yeah, it's such a... Oh, I love that. Such a so opposite, I think, to a lot of the approaches I've seen in the past where you walk into a program and it'll be that brand new staff, the young staff who's sort of maybe fresh out of college, who's really excited and keen to kind of do the work. And they're often sort of picked as the, the key implementer or the champion for the program. Yeah. And they're the ones that are given that that training. And sure enough, they do a wonderful job. But like you like you said, you've got 
you know, a, a term we often use, and I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but it is, it's, it's kind of legacy staff. So staff, yeah. staff that have just been, you know, with that, potentially with that, that individual for 10, 20 years, um, you know, moved up the, the seniority ladder and, and, you know, sort of has the, you know, the best hours or whatever, but is also often the one that will say, yeah, we tried all that 10 years ago yeah. or, or, yeah. or someone came in and, and, and tried to do that and it just didn't work. Doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. You know, and what we really need to do is, you know, unfortunately, what we really need to do is take a hard line and just have a firm voice and just watch. I'll yes. just tell him, sit down and he will, you know, yes. and, and that keeps everybody safe. The idea of sort of going to that person and making that person the champion is just, it's hard for me to grasp. I, it, it's, it's, uh, it makes so much sense what you're saying. I mean, if you can get this guy on board, uh, you know, it, it could totally change the system, but, mm. you know. How do, you, how do you get that guy on board? Is is does practice leadership in itself in the UK? Like I've never heard that term. I've, I've heard it mentioned a couple of times. Sorry, I guess um, listening to the uh, the uh, PBS Matters podcast um, there, which is done by a couple of folks over there, and they taught they, they interviewed a fella. Uh, what was his name uh, Roy? Roy Devoe. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 unfortunately, in that particular episode. Uh, Roy's Roy's voice volume was so low, I really struggled to hear it. But um, he uh, apparently he does a lot of work in that area. Is there a lot of yeah. like research and kind of practice leadership kind of happening over there that kind of comes up with sort of you know you know strategies to sort of get these folks on board? Yeah, well, I, I think there's growing amounts of of work on this, and I know the work like that's been done in the Tizard, particularly around um, mm. Julie Beadlebang, Peter McGill. Mm. Is talk about capable environments as well, and that, and we talk we use that term in PBS a lot. How do we develop these capable environments in the first place? And some of the work of Roy DeVoe, Peter McGill has talked about this idea of practice leaders, and these are these are the frontline leaders of the teams in this service, and making sure they have good knowledge about PBS making sure that they can support the implementation of all of the interventions, making sure that they coach and they organize the staff. They make sure that they put the environmental adaptions into place, make sure the, the visual timetables are updated every day with the, with the person. So I think there's growing amounts of research that is indicating that this is where the difference can be made in terms of success or not, is having these, these practice leaders. And my view is, you know, Behavior analysts, you know, surely behavior analysts are the best to change the behavior of a member of staff. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we think about, oh, this is really hard. We can't do that. But surely we've got years of training in behavior change. Yep. Why can't we start with the very people that cause the hurdles in these settings? Yeah. And surely we have the skills and experience to be able to do that. You know, and it comes yeah. back to to having a relationship, to understanding what that person says, involving them in, in not telling them what to do, like as we wouldn't do with the people we support, but making sure that they have self-determination, that yeah. they're involved and and we do listen. And then we work alongside them and say, you know, well, I think this is going on. Look at what the data saying here. You, you, you know, look at the data we've had. We've had uh, nine incidents this week. They've all been around meal times. What do you think that indicates? Well, mm. and, and, and trying to get them, you know, trying to work alongside them to get them to come to their own conclusions by mm -hmm. using our data, by using our visuals, by using our explanations, that we're not forcing people. And, and they come up with an idea about, you know what, it is about meal times, isn't it? You know, I'm, mm. I, I've always wondered about whether we should be doing something like this. Do you know what? That's a great idea. Why don't we try that for the next few weeks? I'll come in and watch. We'll organize it differently and we'll see if that makes a difference. Lo and behold, it does. Then you single out that that grumpy staff member as what a yeah. what a change it 
made to managers. He's doing a fantastic job. Look at what difference he's made already. We're down nine incidents a week since his little tweak at meal times. So I think I, I think it's possible. I think it, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and I think we, we we have the skills to do that. And if we don't, we need to reflect on our training a little bit because we're meant to be behavior change agents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned that we kind of you said we didn't touch on. Uh, one thing I like about folks are doing in the UK around PBS is that you know it, it, it is it is looking at sort of kind of redefining and you know and and sort of upgrade is the right term but upgrading kind of what a PBS model kind of should look like what a framework should look like on our side of the world everything kind of goes back to sort of that seminal Ted Carr The article, uh, the evolution of PBS, and and that really is the you know sort of seminal piece that we kind of still to this day kind of base most of kind of what we do on. We have done, I think we have done some research in some some specific areas, but I I really like what uh, what's kind of been happening in in the UK around. uh, So there was that that Hastings et al. in 2013 where they kind of just redefined an entire framework of of PBS, which I you know highly recommend folks, you know, especially on, on this side of the world, kind of take a look at and get some ideas from. But then you've done some work um more recently, um, and you mentioned the vulnerability factors, yeah. uh, which which kind of remind me a lot in a lot of ways of kind of these sort of setting events. Um, yeah. is kind of the, the phrase I've heard in sort of the, the O'Neill et al and Horner camp uh, version. But You've also kind of done some interesting things around these maintaining processes and impact factors. And I just wanted to kind of talk about what those are and, and kind of what you found there. The second secret word is medication. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, um, the papers you refer to, the 2013 papers in the International Journal of PBS, very much um, set us on the track in the UK in terms of defining PBS based on UK practice. And interestingly, um, later this year, there's going to be an update to the definitions as well. So there's some work ongoing with that at the moment. And there is uh, a PBS uh, build, International PBS Conference taking place in Glasgow in October. And hopefully that will be the launch of some updates to the definition. So I would urge people to keep an eye out um, for that. One of the papers in that edition, though, was a paper by Hastings and et al., where they looked at the causal factors for for challenging behavior. And in the um, 2019 paper that I did alongside Richard Hastings, we, we, we did some work on that to try to update it based on some of the more recent research we found. So within this causal model, if you can picture at the moment, we have challenging behavior that sits in the middle. And we know that challenging behavior is influenced by the set of vulnerability factors that that sit before it. So we know that with adults with intellectual disabilities who have certain vulnerability factors appear at greater risk of presenting challenging behavior. So I'll review those quickly in, in a minute. So we have vulnerability factors that contribute to challenging behavior. We know that behavior is functional. Um, We know that behavior is maintained by environmental processes around it. So as well as doing something about the vulnerability factors, it's crucial we do functional assessments. We understand what the function of behavior is, and we have really good behavioral analytic intervention plans um, uh, around people to, to address that. And then we also know that historically there's been these set of impact factors that have followed the presentation of challenging behavior. 
which have largely been harmful. So if you think historically, people with learning disabilities presented challenging behavior, you know, they've been put in institutions, they've been excluded from communities, excluded from, from society. They've been exposed to high levels of psychotropic medication. And what we know now with these restrictive practices and, and high use of medication, they have an almost cyclical impact in making vulnerability factors worse. So if you go back to where I started and, and, and think about that, you know, one vulnerability factor um, is health, poor health. We know adults with learning experience poor health. Those in more poor health seem to be more predisposed to challenging behavior if the environmental contingencies are, are in play as well. You give somebody a high level of psychotropic medication, several medications, which people are commonly on, with all of the side effects, you are potentially going to add to their impaired health and increase the vulnerability for challenging behavior. If, because somebody has been challenging in the cinema, and these are the type of things that we hear, uh, you know, I, I, I've gone into residential homes and said, what's happening tonight? What are you doing? Oh, not much. You're not going to the cinema or anything like that? Oh, we don't go to the cinema because in 1993, there was an incident where the popcorn got thrown and huh. we've never been back since. And we have that. We all hear these stories. But all these exclusions and all these things that happen, these restrictions around people then go back and, and mean that they've got even less meaningful activity. They've got more impoverished social networks. They've got more restricted community presence. And that adds to those vulnerability factors as well. So I think that's what defines PBS, because PBS, we look at what these vulnerability factors are. We, we, we look at people and think, you know what, there's some health issues here. We need to address them because they're contributing to, uh, you know, if this young lad's got terrible teeth, you know, he must have toothache. And we're seeing spikes in behavior around that. Um, it's not just contributive to that. He's, there's a spike in behavior related to how the staff are, are organizing his day, for example, but it's being contributed as, so you could define it as a setting event in terms of a health issue by that. So PBS looks at those health issues. They look at the biological factors that contribute to challenging behavior. PBS looks at the psychosocial vulnerabilities. You know, we go to people and say, you know, there's some communication issues here. We need speech and language working with communication. This person's experienced some negative life events. There's been trauma attachment issues here. We need psychology working with us to look at look at some potential talking therapy or some reframing around support for, for that. You know, there's some associated mental health vulnerabilities here. We need psychiatry to be supporting us with that. So in the PBS model, we look at these vulnerability factors and we address them. We look at the maintaining processes. We do a functional assessment. We look at the impact factors and we think we're going to do things differently here. We're not going to restrict people. We're not going to medicate them. We're going to work on their quality of life. We're going to take positive risks. We have that incident in the cinema. We're going to get around a table, work out what go went wrong, work out how we can support better when we go next time. And we're going to go back the next weekend because we're going to make sure we get it right because that person loves going to the cinema. And he only tipped the popcorn up because the staff didn't realize he wanted a can of Coke with it. And, and went off ahead. Without that, he wasn't able to express it. So threw the po popcorn down in protest. So we need to get better at understanding that. So for me, that's what sets the PBS framework apart. It's not just concentrating on its maintaining processes, its functional behavioral analytic bit. It's wider than that. It's focused on vulnerability factors and impact factors. And that's why, you know, I mentioned medication. We can talk about medication. I think behavioural analysts, everywhere they go, need to be asking what medication are people on? Why are they on it? When was it last reviewed? 
Is it being successful? And can I contribute to the next review, which looks at it? Because we're trying to look at how we modify environmental aspects for this person. So we need to also review what's happening medication-wise as well. And we need to show a professional curiosity in that and begin to make some inroads into it. So true. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I really like the sort of cyclical model there that sort of brings you right back to making those same thing. <laughs> you put these interventions into place to sort of deal with some of those vulnerabilities, but those interventions are actually, you know, making making them worse or 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 or, or adding to them in some way. You know, I, I think about a really kind of common physiological um, ailment that a lot of people in in sort of group home settings seem to have. And strangely enough, they seem to be the folks that, you know, uh, are, are not vocal, is constipation. Yeah. So many of these folks are constipated. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and considering that, you know, I, I think the one thing about in sort of these residential sort of settings, and, and again, I, I don't really totally agree with this process either in, in that it doesn't always embed a lot of choice, but they're often put on quite healthy diets. Um, uh, yeah. You know, often, you know, nutritionist or dietitian designed diets, you know, that follow the whatever the sort of, um, you know, food guide in your particular country might be. So I know for ours, it's it's heavy, heavy vegetable, um, um, you know, which, you know, being a vegan myself, I certainly don't mind, but that doesn't work for everybody. And so you would think, you know, with with a diet like that, that constipation shouldn't be prevalent, you know, at all. That You know, they're, they're doing all the right things or we're making sure they drink, you know, exactly 2,500 milliliters of water each day and no more, no less and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So what's going on? Well, it's it's the crazy medication that they're on. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, and that had nothing to do with um, constipation in the first place, but has caused constipation. Of course, now because of constipation, now they're on stool softeners and, uh, yeah. and laxatives and, and those sorts yeah. of things. And of course, you know, that's now resulted in dehydration and, you know, actual, you know, internal injuries to the point of, you know, or or that's actually resulted in you know, the onset of new challenging behavior, like, yeah. like anal digging and, 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 and smearing and see all, all these sorts of things. And, and that cycle just continues. And I think yeah. this is a, a kind of a nice segue into the other kind of area that you've been doing a lot of really great work in uh, looking at uh, overprescribing medication and, uh, you know, drug interactions and those sorts of things. So maybe we could kind of jump into that area and kind of the work you've been doing there. Yeah, yeah, well, you're so right. When um, I kind of fell into some of the the, the drug and medication research um, almost by accident, because this came. My interest in this came about when we were doing. Um, we were trying to find out the prevalence of of challenging behaviour, and when we were trying to look at the the vulnerability factors, we did a uh, um, we did surveys on the total population of adults in Jersey with a learning disability, and as as well as getting behavioral data, we also got some personal and demographic data. And one of the questions was about medication, quite by chance, really, at the time. But I was struck when I was going round these settings, when I asked that question, the sheer number of medications people were on. And it shocked me. And when I turn around to staff and say, why are they on that? They'd say, I don't know. Been on it for years. And I said, well, what does it do? Don't know. Don't know. Who prescribes it? Well, I think they just get repeat prescriptions from the, the, the clinician. And so it started to worry me. So when we finished that bit about prevalence of behavior and vulnerability factors, we started to have a look and thought, let's do some analysis of some of this medication um, stuff. And this had coincided a couple of years after Rory Sheehan had done a huge study in the UK 
across GP surgeries that discovered that around one in two adults with learning disabilities are on psychotropic medication. So they're the medications of a mind, usually prescribed for mental health issues. So we're talking that 50% of adults with learning disabilities are on these real potentially potent medications, um, psychotropic medications. So so we had a look in Jersey and said, well, what is it? What is it here? And um, lo and behold, it was less in the UK, but it was still around 40% in Jersey. And the prevalence of things like Movicol, lactulose for constipation was really high as well. And that wasn't just associated with some of the other medications. It was also associated with the people that had the 40% that had nothing to do in a day, the sedentary lifestyle type group, the group that had a lot of time chilling in front of the TV as well, the lack of exercise um, group as well. So we began to think, you know, there's a bit of an issue here. And we had a look into it. And and what we discovered was that if you had defined challenging behavior, certainly in Jersey, you were twice as likely to be prescribed psychotropic medication um, than if you didn't have a behavioral issue. And in terms of antipsychotics, you were three times as likely to be prescribed an antipsychotic if you were displaying challenging behavior than not. You know, an antipsychotic might be helpful if you're experiencing psychosis, but how many of that group displaying challenging behavior was their behavior as a result of psychosis? <laughs> uh, when we were going around doing functional assessments, adjusting people's support, understanding the function behind their behavior, understanding what they were trying to communicate with some of that and making really successful inroads with our, in our and our outcome study showed really great improvements to behavioral issues from the work, mm. PBS work we were doing. So we began to think, what is going on with this? Why are people being prescribed so much of this toxic medication that does have those very side effects that you mentioned, that, that, that stuff that causes people impacts on their sleep, impacts on their, their diet, on their, uh, in, you know, on their health. People were putting on weight. People were getting constipated, feeling nauseous, having headaches. And you imagine you add that, you add these, these cocktails of medications also to people that have communication impairments. And then you do begin to worry about, you, you know, how do people communicate the side effects back and let us know that they're in discomfort from some of this. And we also wondered at the time, and I'm not sure too much research has been done on this, but in terms of is a higher prevalence of medication use in people that actually lack capacity to consent? So mm. are we seeing more people, uh, greater degrees of medication use on people where others are making the decision around it as well, as opposed yes. to them consenting personally? So it's a huge, huge issue. And obviously, there's big campaigns in the UK. We have Stomp, Stop the Overprescribing of Medication, doing some work. But I guess my dismay with some of it is, is that you go back 30, 40 years, some of the papers that were coming out then, we were repeating. The research is the same. You're going on 30, 40 years, and we're still seeing overprescribing of medication. You know, the recent study, one of my colleagues did, did um, Martin McMahon, where they looked at the pre prevalence of drug-to-drug -drug interactions. So he was concerned that people are on multiple different psychotropics. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the research, there's certain different psychotropic medications that really is advised not to be prescribed with others. Yet there's a large proportion of these people on those medications, some of which have life-threatening interactions as well. So we're taking significant medical risks with people here in terms of um, the medication they are on. And that worries me. And that can't be right. And that simply can't be right. 
And then when you go to settings and people say, well, they don't know why they're on it. So if they don't know why they're on it, the people who are supporting individuals don't know what the side effects are. They don't know what to look out for it. Mm -hmm. The people can't report it. Clinicians are just putting repeat prescriptions out and not reviewing it. So we need to do something about this. And if you think that people with you know, prevalent challenging behavioral issues are more likely to be on this. If we are getting involved as, as behavioral analysts, as PBS practitioners with these individuals, I think we need to be asking questions about this. And, and I think behavioral analysts can be really helpful partners to prescribers as well. And despite that monologue of anti-medication uh, speech I've just, just given, I'm not anti-medication. And I have seen, I, I have um, young people that have ADHD, for example, where some methylphenidate alongside some adjustments we've made in terms of classrooms and support has made a great difference. I've had some adults that have had it with learning disabilities have had some associated mental health issues and some of the medication has been really helpful in terms of that. So I think when when medication is given for its its, its prescribed purpose, um, I think there's a place. But when we start using it off license for behavior, that's when I start to get worried. So what I would be saying to behavior analysts and practitioners listening and, and, and involved in this is, when you go and you get referrals and you involve with people, ask what they're on, ask the people why they're on it, when it mm-hmm. was prescribed, who's reviewing it, who's measuring if it's of any benefit. And if you get a case and a clinician as you're working says, I'd like to trial this individual on it on some medication and see how that impacts on somebody's behavioral issues. Say, great, I've got data and sheets in place. We're monitoring the behavior. You put your start date on that and I will graph up the impact of your medication intervention on my graph and when we review in four weeks we'll be able to see very clearly if it's made a significant different difference and we'll keep reviewing it based on on that aspect and i think with our expertise in terms of data and monitoring you know we could we could present that and then actually either evidence where medication is helpful um, or also provide the evidence where it's made no uh, impact whatsoever and we need to stop it. it and encouraging people to to work with clinicians to to come off medication and to think about the environmental changes that we can make as opposed to using medication to try to fix people and fix their behavior internally, as opposed to, to seeing it what we all do as an, as an environmental um, issue. The third secret word is specialist. And have you seen that successful? Like, have you, have you seen, you know, doctors kind of responding to a behavior analyst bringing a graph in the room and, and and sort of being on board with that idea? Or how do you sort of get the doctor to sort of partner with you in the first place? Um, I guess certainly over here, my experience is it has depended on clinician. Uh, you have some some clinicians that are more, uh, more amenable to this than others. I think I have found learning disability nurses great advocates for this approach. And quite mm. often, certainly the people in Jersey that are on medication and issues, we have learning disability nurses within our community team who can be the link between the psychiatrist and the, or the prescriber and the PBS team looking and working on, on some of these. So I think they can be helpful as well. But I also think the prescribers are under pressure as well. And that's where a lot of this comes from. We have, because I think historically and currently, there is a lack of behavior analysts. There's a lack of psychologists. So psychiatrists are overwhelmed with families and staff teams and others coming to them and saying, we've got issues here. We've got huge risk. We're getting, we've got somebody self-harming. We've got high levels of aggression. We've got all this going on. And they're putting pressure on, on psychiatrists to do something. 
and they haven't uh, often haven't got the option to say oh there's a pbs guy over there do you do the pbs work first let's see what environmental adaptions we can make and come back they don't have that luxury people are putting pressure on so they think what have i got in my armory to try to make a difference like i can give you a script I can give a prescription for medication. So I'm not saying this is coming from any, you know, uh, reflection on bad practice. I think quite often prescribers would like um, behavioral analysts and PBS prescribers working alongside them to have a different option and to be working with them. So they can be they can be focused on on, on the ones that do have mental health issues, which are which are impacting, which where medication will be effective and appropriate. So we need to go to them and say, we're here, we can help, as opposed to being, I guess, critics on the side. And, uh, you know, it's easy to criticize, but it's less it's less difficult to understand why people are prescribing and say, well, I'm here to help. For sure. The other piece that kind of confuses me, and and, and I'm, I'm curious sort of what you've found and sort of or what folks you've been working with have found when they're interacting with physicians. How do we get to the point of of a psychiatrist prescribing a medication that doesn't interact well with other medication. Yeah. Yeah, that's difficult. I think certainly, and I don't know what it's, you know, what the systems are elsewhere, but we yeah. also, I'm also aware that we have different, different prescribers at times as well. So people might go to their GP for medication. People might go to a psychiatrist for medication. We have nurse prescribers now mm. in place. And I think that's an issue in itself. There's somebody central um, overseeing all of the all of the prescriptions, so that doesn't that that doesn't happen, and it and it's measured. And you know, we we've been doing our research, and we've had we'd have people with with up to thirty different medications at one time. Wow. Um, and you know, a number of those medications are medications to challenge the side effects yep. of other medications. Yeah. Yep. You know, you you prescribe an antipsychotic, then you prescribe another medication to help yep. with the Parkinsonian effects, and you yep. prescribe a laxative to help with the, the 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 constipation. You then prescribe a sleeping tablet to because of the sleep's impact, and and it just expands and expands. So I'm not sure I have any answers um, yeah. um, to that. I'm 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 not a clinician. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't envy their work. Again, you know, they're such valuable commodity. Even in in Jersey, we are short of psychiatrists in our children's services at at the moment, and they do a great job. But they're under such pressure, and they're working such long hours um, with this. So, I guess to avoid this, we need to invest in these psychosocial alternatives. We need more BCBAs and PBS practitioners and psychologists and therapists and support staff who who have a good grasp of um of, of quality of life issues mm-hmm. so we have alternatives for prescribers who 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 are under such pressure so you know that would be my my inclination whilst at the same time i think we need more work and it does need to be more adherence to guidance you know we have clear nice guidance in the uk over prescribing which clearly says you know this has a place alongside functional assessments alongside community-based support environmental adjustments but because of the lack of those options, it's not happening. So we have 30 years on, we have the same results, which is which is just simply depressing. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, is this just like a simple matter of, well, maybe simple is not the right word, but matter of sort of medical records being passed along, you know, and those sorts of things, you know, is, is it, you know, I, I sort of make the assumption that when my doctor prescribes me a medication, they're going to know what their medications I'm on, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe maybe I just don't understand sort of the whole medical record system, and that, and especially if you know someone's been prescribed something as a child, and then ages into adulthood, you know, do, do things sort of change that way? I know I had one fellow who, you know, uh, who I was working with, and he was in his late twenties, and 
you know, he's, he's on some of these really high doses of medication that were prescribed to him when he was 12, sort of, you know, just hitting puberty when all the challenging behavior were, you know, you know, really coming out because of all the, sort of the puberty effects as well. And, and those medications never changed. And he went on to sort of be on a whole bunch of other medications. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's just, you know, a, a lack of a lack of sharing of information. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it could be. Um, I think there's pressures on time. Another solution um, is that certainly in the UK, it's good practice uh, that every adult with a learning disability has an annual health check. I'd like to see some of the prevalence of compliance towards that, because if that is done properly, as per guidance, we should have a natural annual review every year for, for mm-hmm. somebody where with all of the clinicians around the table that looks at the medication and says, goodness, they've been on this for 12 years or they've been on this for a number of years. And look, they're now on this and this and this as well. Uh, you know, maybe we should start trying to uh, reduce this and, and take somebody off this. And then let's have a, you know, let's have a period where we take people off medication and we see now as they're, as they're older, whether it's um, um, it's required or whether we, now we've got the PBS team we can look at doing. So I think that's a solution as well. If we if we make sure that people have regular reviews for their medication and and maybe that that is another an area learning disability nurses can 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 focus on and champion. And that's a, and the CF, you touched on that a couple of times. That's something I, I always found interesting and kind of neat about the UK was the sort of this concept of of, of learning disability nurses. I think also just sort of a few terms here for folks that maybe not familiar with um, you know sort of you know how the UK labels things. Um, you know, sort of in, in North America, a learning disability. Um, sort of falls under kind of things like, um, you know, specific, dis- and I could be butchering this, but sort of specific disabilities really related to kind of academics and education, okay. so like yeah, dys- yeah. dyslexia, dyscalculia, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. Um, and, and then we sort of, everything else kind of falls into sort of developmental disability, which I think okay. is sort of what you folks call learning disabilities over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, we would pitch the other as learning difficulties. We would yes. pitch the other. So, uh, I, do, yeah. I do like the learning disabilities term much better. I think it actually has a better a better term. But anyway, you, you have uh, learning disability nurses, which is mm. not something that I was ever familiar with. And I, and I, and I became familiar with it um, through, uh, you know, uh, the great work of a, of, a, of a younger disability nurse at the time that kind of got into PBS, um, uh, Jonathan Beebe. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's just, he's done a really good job of sort of kind of disseminating. And so he was sort of one of the first people I kind of fell upon um, in the UK before I found sort of all, 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 all the great academic research because he was sort of, he had his own little blog going around yeah. and, and he was doing writings and, and, and how these learning disability nurses were we're getting trained as PBS practitioners. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's exactly yeah. what we need. Um, because we do have mental health support nurses. That's sort of the, our version of the same thing kind of over here. But, you know, uh, they don't really, they don't have that sort of PBS component. And so I love how the UK is, uh, and I'm not really sure how it formed and, or, or if it's regulated or what it is, but that all these learning disability nurses are also trained in PBS and so have that perspective. And I think that's a real... A real plus for you folks and something maybe you know we can model off over here yeah absolutely really cool really cool uh work you're doing um you know you share with me a, a lot of great research and really kind of see what you know what pbs looks like over there and, and i think you guys are doing some really neat things that we can learn from i think this someone's got to start something like the stay up late program over here because i think that's just the most brilliant thing i've ever heard of and uh you know a, a real a real game changer i think for 
you know, uh, the quality of life for folks. Before we kind of uh, depart here, maybe you could just tell me kind of what projects you're working on now, and then maybe sort of just any any sort of last words for the for the listening audience. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, working wise. Um, I've recently slightly changed, and and I'm working in the area of uh, of children's mental health, overseeing our local um, um, child and adolescent mental health service over mm. here. So I'm even beginning to see in in that population how some of the PBS approach is, is helpful um, there and how, you know, the psychosocial responses as, as, as opposed to the medicalizing of some of these conditions is, is useful. So I'm beginning to, to look at that over here in terms of that bit. I've been involved in some of the working groups in terms of um, some of the updates to the definitions of PBS, which is, is coming up this year. I'm going to be involved at the conference in October. Right. One of the things um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about quality of life, but I'm also going to be talking about positive risk taking as well. Right. Um, that's something I'm really interested in as well in terms of um, we have this intent to improve people's quality of life. But, you know, the people that get referred to our service, um, you know, some of the behavior is risky. It's risky to themselves and, and to others. And that's a question I was often asked. How do this is what staff members say to me? How do I take people out? How do I go back to the cinema? What if they have that incident and there's a child there and and the risks are around this? But if we don't make take positive risks, we're not going to improve people's quality of life. So I'm really interested in that. So I'm going to be talking at the conference about that. And we've done a bit of work with that, particularly over here within organizations. How do organizations support this idea of positive risk taking and um, involve some of our health and safety uh, um, more minded uh, practitioners as, as well to make sure we are risk assessed and paperwork's up on these issues and we're compliant with mm. with things, but also pushing the boundaries. You know, I've sent adults with learning disabilities who never left Jersey before with high levels of challenging behavior on the ferry for a day trip to France, which people oh. have been sat behind sofas all day worried about. But we've done it because it's important because that's what they want that's what they wanted to do and and their behavior has impacted on them being able to leave jersey in the past and it's only by doing some of those things that we see improvements to that and yeah. and we see that so i'm interested in that idea of positive risk taking and we're going to do some um and some further work on on that i've also got a number of follow-up studies that i need to work on with some of the existing data we've got from some of the work so one of the ideas is to look at i talked about vulnerability factors and mm. um and when we did the study to look at vulnerability factors, we also did um, this idea of working out cumulative risk indices. So that's quite interesting. So um, what we did in that was we we added up, um, we worked out what the vulnerability factors are, and then we added up if people had more than one vulnerability factor using mm. some different statistical methods. And what what that showed is if, if quite obviously, really, that, that the more vulnerability factors are, the more greater risk you were of presenting challenging behavior. So there's this idea of cumulative risk. So there's also a potential um, with some longitudinal data we've got to see whether these cumulative risk indices potentially predict the future occurrence of challenging behavior. Now, if so, that's potentially helpful as almost like a screening tool, particularly for when people are younger. So we can potentially produce a tool that, that says, you know, we've got a young person here, you know, how's their health? How's their communication skills? How's their engagement? How's their self-determination? And if we can list all these, these appropriate and work out what the community list is, maybe we can get in early at some of the more protective interventions that could potentially prevent the future occurrence of, of, of challenging behavior as well. 
Um, and that's the thing about PBS is about preventative. You know, it's about doing good quality of life and, you know, having good antecedent interventions that, that prevent this issue of, of challenging behavior in the first place. And I think the other concluding thing that mm. I'd like to leave by as well, which, which came out in my research uh, as well, is that it's a very rare issue that we get to somebody never showing any uh, what would be defined inappropriate or challenging behavior ever again. Mm. And I don't think any of us get to that point. Mm-hmm. And if anybody came into any of our houses and did a behavioral ratings tool or chased us around with ABC sheets and monitored us um, continuously, we would all show a level of behavior. And I think that's why the PBS emphasis is on this idea of quality of life and not so much focusing on this idea of, of behavioral challenge. And in our outcome study, you know, we were really, really successful as a service, but very rarely did we get to a stage where people never, ever showed a level of, of behavioral challenge again. What we did get to, though, was a stage where people were presenting a level of behavior which was much more common of the expected level of the general population. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think sometimes potentially reframing what we're trying to do in our areas is better. And I think that puts less pressure on staff and services. And what is what good is getting a total extinction of challenging behavior if that person has an absolutely miserable life? And we can do that. But most of the referrals I get, I could guarantee you I could produce a week where that person doesn't display any behavior. But I have to balance that with that person also doing all the things they love, having a great quality of life, and knowing I can't always control all the environmental contingencies that impact on that. So sometimes we might have a big scary dog run up on a beach that invokes an issue, but I'm going to work with that person on how they manage dogs going forward, but I'm not just going to never take them on the beach again. So that's where the balance comes in as, as well. The balance between you know reducing, reducing levels of behavior but also making sure we balance that out with people having good quality of life and not put pressure on total extinction. I love the idea of, of sort of a ordinary person, you know, level of challenging behavior is sort of a metric. I, 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 because I think we're often expecting perfection. You know, yeah. uh, and, and if we don't get perfection, it's right back to sort of restrictive practices and safety plans and yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. and sort of all these sorts of things. And, and I know for me, you know, if, if I'm frustrated one day and decide I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, throw a plate across the room, you know, that shouldn't now limit me from going to work the next day. No. Um, and, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and but, so and, on and, and so forth. Yeah. And that's what we found. We, we, we use the behavioral problems inventory to assess levels of challenging behavior. Now, now, that has a definition such as being verbally abusive. Mm. Um, so, you know, and what we found is when we were using that, that most people were scoring some level on it. You know, most of us might get grumpy and swear <laughs> at somebody and, yeah. and, and do things. Most of us might yell and scream. So there's a level of um, behavior that, that I think is, is more normative. And then there's a level of behavior which is more clinically concerning. So, yeah. so. What, what we've tried to do is instead of, you know, give ourselves targets of a reduction in the clinical level of behavior as opposed to total extinction as our target, getting people much more towards the norm of most people as opposed to never showing these issues again, which I think is unrealistic. And that behavior problems inventory, is that a tool that can kind of provide that that line, as it were? Yeah, so it's a it's it's a useful tool and it's actually freely available on, hmm. on online as well. We use a short form in Jersey. 
it's called a BPIS, a behavioral problems inventory short form. Mm. Um, it's got three categories of behavior, a self-injurious category, aggressive, destructive, and a stereotyped behavior category. And it rates um, 30 most typical behaviors in terms of frequency and severity. So it's quite helpful. I find it very helpful at point of referral because quite often people refer to services for behavior that impacts on them as opposed to the person. So we get lots of referrals for aggression <laughs> because they impact on others, less so on other on issues that could be more internal that do impact on that person's quality of life. So it helps us at referral work out what, what's going on from a more um, evidence-based approach. And we, we did a paper in the TISARD where we used some um, statistical analysis to produce some scores from this. So if you use this as a pre and post test measure, you can get a behavioral score from it. Mm. And then we worked out what score reductions would needed to that would indicate statistically significant behavioral reduction and clinically significant behavioral reduction. So that's our aim as a service. Our aim as a service is we do the BPIS at the beginning and then we do it later when our interventions are in. And what we hope to see is clinically significant reduction in the behavioral scores between the two rating scales. So we obviously have our individual, we, we, we have all our other um, frequency tallies and ABC tallies and uh, um, episodic severity measures. So we have different measures, our, our, our more behavioral analytic measures that we would graph as well. But we just find this as, a, as another helpful measure that kind of uh, sits as a pre and post test uh, measure with that score. So um, so that paper is in the TISARD Learning Disability Review. If people Google my, my name, Bowring and TISARD LDR and BPIS, it will it, that paper will come up as well. So I think that that's useful uh, uh, as well. And I think it's a, a slightly different mindset when we start thinking about that than post, you know, total reduction of challenging behavior. Absolutely. You know, it, make, it makes you think of, I'm definitely going to, I know we're going to have show notes and we'll share. I've been taking copious notes. We'll have, um, you know, all these resources available for folks. You know, it makes me think of, and and I'm, I'm going to be touching on this, I think, in a, in a future episode. You know, it's it, again, it's not so much about whether the individual engages in challenging behavior ever again. So say, so say the individual goes so three, four months with, you know, no problems and then just has one blow up and kind of moves on. That one blow up, it actually isn't really a big deal for the individual. It's it's a big deal for the staff. And I think what, it's almost a, a, almost a, like a, a trauma trigger, I think, for staff. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because staff have been traumatized by you know the intensive amounts of challenging behavior, yeah. Yeah. and to sort of see it again, it brings it all back. He, he's gone back to zero, back to day one. We got to start all over again, and so I think you know some supports in there for you know for you know helping with staff drama is probably going to be really important as well. Yeah, yeah, the work of Peter Baker in the UK is really it, mm. it, it, you know is really good about that, and I think that 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 is important if we think of changing culture as well. You know, the constant exposure to challenging behaviour for staff teams is is telling, and mm. you know Peter's research shows that the amount of you know. Pro- features of post-traumatic stress disorder that staff show and families actually as well through the constant exposure to challenging behavior. Mm. You know, I don't think that should be um, neglected and there's, you know, there's work that's needed on that. But also, and you know, I think that's why data is helpful as well. And, and sometimes we go to meetings and, and review things and people say, oh, we've had a really, we haven't had a good week this week. It's been, we've had a couple of issues and it is worth going and reminding people that a year ago, you were getting two incidents an hour and look at our data and look at our graph where we've gone to. And, and perspective, I think, is helpful um, sometimes. You know, behavior is emotive, isn't it? When we're in the middle of it, it's really difficult. And that's why I think we need 
we need all these data tools that we use in our ABA practice and with BPIS. We need those to, to be able to give us a more objective um, view and to help staff take a more objective view at times. Wow. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, Really, definitely going to try to have you back maybe in a year or so, so we can talk more about sort of the positive risk taking and the cumulative risk indices. I think those are really interesting, and I think can can really provide you know um, you know a, a new perspective for folks kind of working in these areas. I, I definitely want to have you back and talk about that if you'd be interested. Absolutely. Um, um, thanks so much, Darren, for just being on the show and for sharing all your work. I, I love sort of the range of areas that you're kind of covering, sort of each each sort of important piece. And, and, and I think for a lot of the folks that are practicing PBS, especially over, over, over here, uh, they're going to get a lot of really new ideas that they hadn't considered sort of in their PBS practice, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. So thanks again for being on. It was really, really great having you. No, thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure and uh, absolute pleasure to talk PBS.